Good morning. Good to see you all today. So we are continuing with the Diamond Sutra book study and discussion. We are on chapter 25. And I'll begin with reading the chapter. <clears throat> Subhuti, what do you think? Does it occur to the Tathagata, I rescue beings? Surely, Subhuti, you should hold no such view. And why not? Subhuti, the being does not exist who is rescued by the Tathagata. Subhuti, if any being were rescued by the Tathagata, the Tathagata would be attached to a self. He would be attached to a being, attached to a life, and attached to a soul. Attachment to a self, Subhuti, is said by the Tathagata to be no attachment. Yet foolish people remain attached. And foolish people, Subhuti, are said by the Tathagata to be no people. Thus they are called foolish people. So this is a commentary from Bill Porter, Red Pine. In chapter 3, the Buddha tells Subhuti that those who set forth on the Bodhisattva path resolve to liberate all beings and to lead them into the realm of Nirvana but do so without being attached to such perceptions as self and being, or being, which they are able to transcend or transform through the cultivation of wisdom. But traveling the Bodhisattva path requires more than wisdom. And here the Buddha uses the word rescue to emphasize the compassion of such resolve. The emphasis is not on liberation in the realm of nirvana, but on rescue from the realm of samsara. Another crucial difference is that previously the emphasis was on the point of view of a bodhisattva. Here, the point of view is that of a Buddha. There's a case, uh, case 62 in the Shiroloku, which you may remember, Nihu had a monk asked Yang Shan, do people these days need enlightenment or not? And Yang Shan said, it's not that there's no enlightenment, but what can be done about falling into the secondary? And falling into the secondary is where our work is done. This is where, this is where the attention needs to go. It's not about reaching nirvana. Nirvana is already here as we chant again and again. The issue is with the way we live, the way we perceive ourselves, the way we perceive reality, and that's where the work is done. Right? It's not that there is no enlightenment. What could be done about falling into the secondary? What is the secondary? That's a question to work with. Vasubandhu says, Again, the doubt arises if dharmas are undifferentiated and neither superior nor inferior, why does the Tathagata talk about saving beings? As Winang prepared to leave the fifth patriarch, he said, when we are deluded, our teacher liberates us. When we are enlightened, we liberate ourselves. We liberate ourselves. And I want to read another paragraph from the commentary and then uh, open it up, see where we're at about this. 
Sheng Yi says, when a Tathagata teaches a Dharma, after, being, after beings hear the Dharma, they enlighten themselves and liberate themselves. It isn't the Tathagata who can liberate beings. For example, a father can only tell his children to eat. His children have to eat by themselves. The father cannot eat for them. The Tathagata realized the Dharma had and, ha and became a Buddha. And after he became a Buddha, he taught Dharmas to liberate beings. It isn't the Buddha who can liberate beings. If the Buddha could liberate beings, beings would have to cultivate. Beings are themselves Tathagatas by nature. But because their nature has become concealed by the five skandhas, they are blind to it. But they are only blind. They haven't lost it. We're only blind. We have not lost it. Therefore, we cannot find it. Beings can never lose their self-nature, and their self-nature can never leave beings. The five skandhas are form, sensation, perception, mental formation, and consciousness. So, what are we waiting for? That would be a good question to begin from. What, since we are already that, what are we waiting for? And do we realize how we essentially trap ourselves? How do you trap yourself? Let's uh, take a few minutes and explore that. And we're going to begin with Raisan today. Raisan? Um, this just sounds, um, I mean, in any kind of learning, we can only teach ourselves. Um, nobody can teach us anything. Uh, and certainly when we were adolescents, we realized this very well. Um, you can't make me do anything. Um, that, um, yeah, we have to put ourselves in a place where we think um, will be most advantageous to us in being able to learn what we need to learn. How do, we, how do you get trapped? How do you get in your own way? Or do you? Um, well, we get, we get trapped when we think, um, when we think we're there and we're making progress and we're, um, um, we get trapped when we think, um, that this is the ultimate place, um, that, the. Uh, the place is always, um, always a question. What is the right place? Where should I be? Um, mm -hmm. when, we're, when we're convinced that this is the right place and we never have to move from here, uh, we can get trapped. Right. So we get trapped if we think we are deluded and we get trapped if we think we are enlightened. Right? If we get trapped if we think we're lost, we get trapped if we think we have arrived. Either way, there is someone there. Right? Since we are that 
to begin with, right? We are born that way. What needs to happen is we need to call off the search. We need to call off the search and begin from radical acceptance that this is it. Begin from there, not arrive at that. Thank you. Okay, who's next? Yes, Joan, good morning. Good morning. Um, we get in our own way. I know for me, when we get attached to old voices and when we repeat the story of our life, that's it. Yeah, very uh, to the point. <laughs> yes, when we are when we believe the story we tell, right? So we become attached to the story. The story perpetuates itself in the background, <clears throat> right? That's not, uh, there's no volition there. There is, however, volition or there is some wiggle room or space when we believe that the story actually creates me. Then we become fixated on that. Yeah, thank you. Who else wants to talk? How about, uh, yes, go ahead, so again. So really more of a question, I suppose, um, which is if, if you begin from the place of, of this is it, then, uh, I mean, uh, what kind of beginning is, I mean, where do you go from there? I mean, yes. if that's the beginning, it's sort of, um, right? I mean, if you just say, this is it, then aren't, aren't you sort of already done? Well, then it's time to make lunch. Mm. Well, then you're free to make lunch, right? Right. What does it mean, done? Well, what is, I guess I'm, I'm having trouble saying, uh, uh, articulating it, I suppose. I mean, so if you say you're lost, it's, it's a problem. If you say you've arrived, it's a problem, but you say, this is it. But I don't know, where does that, uh, where do you, where do you go with that? The radical acceptance has to do with realizing that the itness of it, this, what we call it is not fixed even for a split second. This is where the, the radical acceptance actually matters most, that all of it is constantly changing. While it is changing, I am grasping. I am grasping while it is while I am changing. Okay. It is constantly shifting and changing and that's the that's the scary part, but but at the same time, that's the the realization that nothing is fixed. Is nothing if nothing is fixed? How can I? How can I create something and hold on to it? Mm. Nothing is fixed, not for a second. So the beginning is is uh, when you say this is it. Then the point is to let go of a fixed self and, and, and let go of clinging to 
both external circumstances and the and the self. Yeah, I mean, what what is clinging? What is attachment? Um, I guess a form of self identification. Right. It has to do. It has to do with creating someone, holding on to a fixed someone who is attached to something, right? Wait. It has to do with that. But when that is seen as a, as a fallacy, right, is seen as a fallacy because it is changing, then the attachment itself also dissolves, mm-hmm. right? There's no grasping because there's no one who can grasp. It's not that we have to let go of what we grasp as much as realize that grasping itself is not possible. Grasping itself is illusion. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So, uh, but I, I, want, I want to just a uh, few minutes spend on uh, what Bill Porter said. For example, a father can only tell his children to eat. His children, his children have to eat by themselves. The father cannot eat for them. Also, the fact that we cannot make someone realize, right? We cannot, but we can point the way or the practice points the way. It is up to us to make it so. It is up to us to make it so. But because we are so, uh, um, because as he, I'm going to go back to what he says here, you know, but they are blind. They haven't lost it. Beings can never lose their self-nature and the self-nature can never leave them. And the thing in that is, the, the important thing here is that we get, we conceal our true nature. We conceal our true nature. And because we are convinced that it is not there, right? Because of that, it, it takes a lot of effort. It takes discipline. We are there. We are it. There's no doubt about that. But without discipline, we're not going to realize it. Without discipline, strong practice, we will not be able to realize it. And that's a very important point. Nobody can do it for us. We don't show up and ask someone, make me realized, make me enlightened. Right? It's, it's a given. We show up like that. It's just that because we don't trust it, we go and ask a teacher, please, Make me realize, right? Make me enlightened. Because, and that is based on an assumption that I don't have what it takes, that I'm weak, right? I'm weak and therefore I need you to do it for me, right? And I'm lacking, therefore you will complete what is missing in, in the puzzle of me, right? That assumption is false. But to break through that, we need... We need discipline and anybody and everybody who has been practicing for a while and has created discipline practice understands exactly what that means. Without discipline, it doesn't work. We, we've talked about it before, but yeah, because the old habit of thinking that we are lacking is going to be the, the, the most prominent, is going to again and again take hold. And grasping continues. The story, as John reminded us, the story will be the predominant factor in our lives. I don't have time now. I have a lot going on. There's this, there's this, there's this, there's this. Everybody's saying that. But what are we saying? 
We are putting on hold. What are we putting on hold? Right? That, that has to do with the story. It's not that the things non, don't need to be taken care of and need to be addressed. Of course they do. But if we don't make realization a, a primary, then we, get drown, we actually drown again and again in the details of our lives. Realization has to be primary. What does it mean to make realization primary? Actually, I want to hear from you rather than say it. So, Daibo, what does it mean to make realization a primary factor in your life? So, I, I want to, um, to bring it back um, to, what, um, to what Raj was, was talking about. And I think this will get to an answer of the question uh, general that you just asked. So again, so when when we say that we're here, right? Yeah. Um, you know, ask yourself where else where else can you be, right? Um, so as Joan says, we have this story of ourselves that we that we think about and that we create and that we act from, right? Mm -hmm. So if, every time, at least I, for me. Every time I engage in a situation, mm -hmm. um, you know, I present myself to that situation based on this story, right? So a lot of times there's a gap, right? Because the story in my head may not fit with the situation, mm -hmm. right? So if, if, if I come from the perspective that every time I present myself to the world in a situation, I present a provisional self that has to fit into that situation mm -hmm. somehow, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So in a sense, my story is not written. It's being written in real time. Mm -hmm. So if my story is constantly being written in real time, how can I have a story to be attached to, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Now, you know, we all have our historical experiences. We have the things that happened to us. We have the schools that we went to, what we know, what we don't know. And things like that but the point is that these are all in my mind tools that we employ to be um, provisionally appropriate because we can never be that story that we have in our minds in every situation and think that that's going to work mm -hmm. so to me the, the the question that roshi asked is not to be attached to that story, but to let the story write itself in real time as we experience, um, you know, the situations of our life. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what it means that, you know, when we say right here, right now, this is it, you know, because all we have is the expression right now, mm -hmm. right? And, and we're writing our story right now in, what we think, what we do, what we act, what we say, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. then we, then we do it again, and then we do it again, and then we do it again, and then we do it again. So every time is the first time, mm -hmm. if you think of it that way, because there is nothing, there is no self. There are all those things that we think make us up, but it's not like, it's not like this glass case, this, mm -hmm. this case, this is a case, right? This is, this is what this is, the side glass case, right? We're not like this in the sense that 
every time I pick, until this disintegrates into its atomic constituent parts, this is going to be a case. But we're not a case every time we manifest ourselves. We're different each time. So that's what I think um, realization top of mind is to me anyway. And, and I hope, Raj, I hope that helps, you know, with this notion of, you know, starting from right here, because mm -hmm. there is no back there. There is right here, mm -hmm. right now. And at least that's the way that I think about it. And this concept of provisional self um, kind of makes it easier to, to think of realization from that perspective. Thank you. Thank you, Daibo. So, so the, the word realization re has real in it, to realize, right? It has real in it. And what we're talking about, to, to, to make realization primary, to make the real primary, means to become a lot more interested in what's going on than what I think about what's going on or the story of me that perpetuates in the background. It means to again and again turn the attention to this, and this is changing. If I realize that this is changing, then what is fixed? Only an idea is fixed. Because an idea is an idea. It's, it's just an idea. It's just a, a veneer that we slap on reality itself and we get caught up in that veneer. But the real, well, the real is always a lot more interesting than the story. The story we know very well because it's the same story again and again. It's me and all the stuff I think about, all the stuff I hold on to, all the stuff I believe in, all the stuff I like or don't like, we know exactly what that is. We've been telling this to ourselves and the world for decades. Why are we still so interested in that is the question. How can we become more interested in our surroundings, in what's happening around us? To just stop and take a look, whether it's looking down, looking up, looking right, looking left, to become interested, to pay attention. We can sum it up by that. You know, the practice is a practice of paying attention, a practice of becoming interested in what's going on more so than what I think about what's going on. Or another word to, another way to say that, at some point in our lives, we should find ourselves boring and reality much more interesting. At some point, we should just stop being so self-concerned. When are we going to do that? Is the question. And today is the answer. Uh, anyone else before we keep reading? Yes. Yeah, good morning. How's it going? What's um, going on, Mukha? Yeah, this, um, this chapter in particular um, reminded me of earlier in the week I watched the movie The Fisher King with Robin Williams. And he says a parable about, uh, you know, the king gets a vision of he's going to be the one to find the Holy Grail, Gra goes to grab it and, you know, completely consumed by the prophecy and the narrative burns his hand and the grail vanishes, spends the rest of his life in deep pain. And, you know, much further in the future, he's sitting on the throne in pain and a fool wanders into the court. And he says, what ails you, friend? And the king goes, I'm thirsty. I need water to, to cool my throat. So he grabs a cup from the side, bedside 
gives it to him and suddenly the wound is healed and the king goes how did you see what all of my wisest and and most intelligent people could not he said i don't know i just saw somebody thirsty and to me i feel like that kind of says it all uh, especially with this chapter and i guess the the more intriguing part of it being that uh, the comment about foolish persons at the end, at the end of the chapter in a way is um the fool was not taken by the narrative in the same way that the king and probably others were around him. He just saw what was plainly there, a thirsty person. There was no mm-hmm. origin story or, or whatever attached to it. It was just very much right there. And, um, you know, it's very easy to get sucked into those narratives. And I often think on when I can't find something like my keys, mm-hmm. I keep going over the same paths. And every time the chances of me not finding it increase because I get increasingly frustrated. And then it turns out it was in my pocket or mm-hmm. some, you know, something directly in front of me the whole time. So it's, uh, keep getting reminded of it. And then, but you keep going back to the story and I don't know, maybe that's just part and parcel with everything, but yeah, just it triggered that memory. So, so thank you. You know, thank you, Mugani. We, we it is simple, but somehow we find the simple unbearable, right? We find yeah, the it's simple. It's not interesting. <laughs> it is. It's not. You're right. And and the, the 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 way we work with that is through zazen, right? We sit and we encounter our restlessness, and our restlessness essentially is about rejecting this, because we find the simple unbearable. Or we don't find ourselves in the simple. So then we, what, what do we do? We, we turn to thinking. And that's where we find ourselves. We, we turn to conceptualization. Because we are addicted to a self. It is real. We are addicted to that. And we have to find a way to wean ourselves from that addiction. And then stop being so interested in that. And then we can pay attention. And if somebody is thirsty, you give them a glass of water. Right? So then you, you become, through intention and volition, you become more interested in reality. Rather than go to a teacher and ask a teacher, make me something. It's like that, uh, that joke uh, about this guy, uh, this Buddhist who goes to a hot dog stand in New York and asks the guy, make me one with everything. <laughs> you probably heard that. Anyway, uh, thank you, Mukan. Uh, Kakua, you wanted to speak? Uh, yeah. Um, I, I'm interested in this idea that the self is kind of an illusion because I think what happens with me is I go back and forth. There's two kind of poles. One, I'm totally grasping. I'm nervous. I'm anxious. I'm restless. Mm-hmm. And then, then I always say to myself, okay, more zazen, more yoga, calm down, calm down, calm, or, or see a teacher. I've been kind of um, a devotee of many, many, you know, great teachers in the course of my life. And then another thing happens. So then supposing I, um, I'm, I'm with the teacher or I do a really long intensive, like a full session, for example, um, you know, seven days or whatever it is, 10 days. Um, then I get to this very free kind of like colors are brighter. I appreciate everything. I think this is what they call Satori, but maybe, maybe not. 
but then I'm in that state and then everything is fine. And I don't really feel the need to do much of anything. Um, but I feel like that also doesn't serve me. That also is not yet enlightenment. I don't know. What do you think? Well, you just said it. It doesn't serve me. That's where, that's where it's at. It's not meant to serve anyone. Oh. There is still someone who wait, who is waiting to be served. Mm. And as long as that's there, it, you will actually, you will, it's really going to be right in front of your eyes, but you will write it off as, oh, well, that's not it either. Right, but even when I say this is it, you know, when I'm just breathing and I just can look at a flower and really see it fully and even when I get to that state, I don't know if that's it or not. <laughs> well, when the voice comes and says, that's not serving me, then regardless of whether or not this is it, it doesn't matter because we go right back to where we came from and we get stuck again. But again, look at that line. Beings are themselves Tathagatas by nature, but because their nature has become concealed by the five skandhas, they are blind to it. And the skandhas are form, sensation, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. This is how we get trapped. And we yeah. chant, Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, doing the Prajna Paramita, clearly so emptiness of all five skandhas, thus relieving misfortune and pain. What is empty is that. It's not that there are no mental formations. There are mental formations, right? Of course there are. And the formations are very loud and very convincing. They have a lot to say, right? But then again, do you have to trust it is the question. Or are you trying to eliminate anything, right? If you think that, you know, as long as I cannot eliminate it, I'm going to be trapped by that, that there's a problem there. Because you can't eliminate what's not there. Well, can I eliminate the five skandhas? I mean, can I move beyond consciousness, for example? Maybe I need to go beyond where there is consciousness, the skandha of consciousness. Yeah, when you die, that's what's going to happen. <laughs> okay. But we don't want to wait. We, we don't want to wait. <laughs> yeah. So, yes. So, so, and the five skandhas by themselves are not a problem. They're not a problem. It's, it's the way we, we function through that. Right? When a thought arises in the mind, a thought that says, this is not serving me, that thought subsides. And if you can see it arising and subsiding without getting caught up by that, that's fine. It's, not going, it's, it's going to be harmless. Mm. Let it arise. Let it stick around. Let it subside. What are we doing in Zazen? What are we learning to do? What do, what do what we do? Free ourselves from the five skandhas. That's just a statement. But what are we doing in actuality, right? In real time, what are we doing? We are learning. We are teaching ourselves to not follow the mind, to not follow the five skandhas. Mm. Again and again, we need to mobilize that. We need to put that in a into action. We need to live it. Not leave mm. it behind. We need to bring it to our lives. Right? So, on the go, thoughts arise. Skandhas are active. That's fine. Sensations arise. Do I have to be blinded by the sensations? And this is what he's saying. The true nature has become concealed by the five skandhas. They are blind to it because 
we allow it to blind ourselves, right? Mm. Because we believe it, because we trust it. We trust a thought more than reality. That's what needs to change. So we have to detach, sort of stand back from the five skandhas. We have to become less interested in ourselves. Meaning, you know, stop telling the story to yourself and others. Mm. Literally, stop telling the story. You may hear it. You don't have to tell it. Uh. There's a big difference. You may hear it in the background. Let it. Mm. Let, the, let the story tell itself rather than you tell the story. Mm. Right, then there's no more me. <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yes, Segyoku, good morning. Hi. Okay, I have two things to say. The first one is heretical. I'm really putting my um, ignorance out there. So when Kakao is you are talking about coming to an end of session and you feel like everything is fine and maybe this is it and then you think well that must be a problem that I think that so to me it seems like at this stage in a sense that feeling of this is it is partly true that what is it is that you're in a state of greater ease. And it just so happens that you're in a state of greater ease because at the moment what you're experiencing is very pleasant and your mind is clear. And, um, but but it's the ease and that what is hard is to be in a state of ease when we're agitated, restless, upset, clinging. What do you say to that? Mm -hmm. And do we want that state of ease? That's the problem. Do we look for that state of ease? Yes, but what I'm saying is, yes, that's a problem. Right, can't look for it. That state of ease is it maybe <laughs> so genre yes am i deluded <laughs> we all are you're in good don't company no <laughs> i mean don't say yes <laughs> now being deluded is not uh okay look it's all in motion i don't know if you remember that story somebody went to uh Mizumi Rashi and asked him are you enlightened and he actually said i'm thoroughly deluded yeah. So, thoroughly is the point. But, uh, okay, so, so yes, the, the state of ease, yes, there is that state of ease. And again, I think we have a problem with that. The state of ease is so simple that it's so easy to, to, to glance over that, to overlook that, and go right back to where we get stuck. So, can we, from that state of ease, can we rest in the ease and then bear witness to the agitation? That is, that is the question. I mean, yes, we can. Of course, we can. And that, that is the practice, to rest in that state of at-easement or at-ease and from there 
to allow, to allow everything to be as it needs to be, right? So even if it's agitation, restlessness, to learn to accept restlessness rather than to try to reject it or push it or be done with it, right? To bear witness is a very important part of practice. We have, and we have to trust that we have the capacity, the ability to bear witness to everything. We have it. So to rest in ease, observing restlessness. Rather than believing restlessness and then adding that to the story. Does that work? That's what I'm trying to learn, to rest in ease. And the ease is very intermittent, but um, I'm hoping that's a stage. <laughs> uh, so one other thing. Yeah. So uh, beginning to realize that uh, only I can do it mm -hmm. is um, both liberating and confusing. So, um, so I get this now. Uh, just because nothing else has worked. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> uh, and because, well, okay. So that means I have to reevaluate my relationship to a teacher. And I do still value having a teacher. Um, and So I don't know what I want to say to about that. I guess I guess it's a process. Uh, that reminds me of that koan: "If you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him." <laughs> right. Kill the layer, but uh, so okay. But it doesn't mean you know. I like having Jean Vu around. I don't really want to kill you. So, um, <laughs> but it. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but it means finding something a little different. Okay, so yes, it, this is this is important to clarify, right? What is the role of a teacher, right? Do you remember Pai Chang in the whole land of China? There are no Zen teachers, right? Then who are you? One monk, one monk asked, and he said, "I didn't say there's no Zen. I just said there are no teachers." The the uh, and this is important to recognize uh, the relationship. It is essential. It is very important. Bodhidharma actually stressed that point again and again that it is very important to have a teacher. But we have to know what that means. To have a teacher, in a way, what we're talking about is to have a mirror. And the mirror shows you to you, right? And what the teacher needs to do, a Dharma teacher, is a Dharma teacher sees the Buddha in you even when you don't see the Buddha in yourself, right? And the fact that the Dharma teacher sees a Buddha a Dharma teacher does not get caught up in the story that you tell the teacher. So he's accepting the story, he's bearing witness to the story, but sees the you before the story. And that's, that's what needs to keep happening, right? And as long as there is an understanding that that's what it's about, then the teacher-student relationship can flourish and can be very conducive. 
right? So what, what we need to do is, is basically mirror. Buddha sees a Buddha, Buddha bows to a Buddha. Right? Yes. And then we walk well, side by side. Go ahead. It's very short. Yeah. So, um, yes, that is uh, very profound and helpful. But it doesn't necessarily mean that a particular upaya that a teacher suggests at the moment is going to be the best upaya for you right then. So I guess this is where I get caught. So it means getting comfortable with Say again? It means getting comfortable with being independent and interconnected and reverent and grateful for that mirror the teacher su supplies, but not having that kind of codependent <laughs> and thinking that the teacher is always right in every single instance. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. Yes, that there is that, but there's also, it's very important to, to, to keep in mind that if we want to have a teacher, we have to be willing to hear what we don't want to hear. If, yes. we, if we keep pushing back and rebelling against everything that comes up because we don't like it, right. there's no, the, the teacher-student relationship is not going to be conducive. Right. You know, and I, I know that from Zen and Aikido, you know, there are times that people ask me, why are we doing this? And I have to tell them, I, I can explain it to you, but it's not going to work. It, it's not going to serve the purpose. You're going to have to stick around, do it again and again and again, and you will understand later. You will understand. I understood many things much later, but I trusted the process. I trust the process. As long as I trust the process, I don't question every other word that comes out of a teacher's mouth or every other thing that a teacher does. I just allow it to be there, allow it to sink, and then process it over time. I may not be able to see the reason, and I may think that the teacher has got something against me, right? For example. But I have to have the patience to stick around, trust the process, and from within the practice, understand what that means. In other words, uh, we teach ourselves. So I remember, take Aikido for example, I remember seeing different teachers, you know, years ago, right? Seeing different teachers demonstrate something. I couldn't understand what they're doing, but I absorbed it somehow. I didn't understand. Later on, I would do something or do a movement and then all of a sudden realize what I saw four, five, ten years before. I wasn't able to understand that at that moment. It, but if I rejected it at that moment, then it won't work, right? So I've allowed it to be absorbed. Not understanding why it's happening, still I'm absorbing it. And that's where trust comes in, right? We have to trust the process. If we don't trust the process, it, it can't work. Meaning if we don't trust the path, then we might as well go do something else. We cannot be one foot in, one foot out. That doesn't work. 
That's why wholeheartedness is so crucial. We completely give ourselves to the practice. All of us. Right? It's not a hobby. It, we, we have to repeat that again and again. This is not a hobby. We don't do that. You know, it's not a Sunday thing to do. And, uh, yeah. So, thank you for bringing that up. Anyone else before we move on? Okay. Enkai. Good morning. Thank you for bringing up this conversation about, well, I always am extremely fascinated by discussing and and, and uh, experiencing this teacher and student relationships, uh, very primary in my life. Um, and I, I've had a, uh, um, I've had a student who's been like absolutely engaged and open, and I was able to have a conversation with them the other day, uh, and I was able to say things with this student that I couldn't say with other students um, because it wouldn't make any sense. It wouldn't work. And it was interesting because earlier in this conversation, before more of the teacher-student conversation came up, um, you know, I started, like I think Lazan said near the beginning that, you know, we really only teach ourselves. And it's something that, a lot of us can kind of like nod our heads to and be like, yeah, we resonate with that. We understand. But then I, you know, in hearing you all share, started to let that sink in a little bit more about, well, what does it really mean? Because in that moment, on, on one hand, it really felt like, well, I was explaining something and then the student was understanding. And so it's like, who's doing the teaching in that moment? Um, and so the, the understanding could be, that well the student was ready to it was already well it's already in all of the students but it was a prime moment for that lesson and that student and they were ready and so it, it wasn't so much me doing the teaching rather than just them being ready for the moment but I'd, i was one doing the action and they were the one receiving in some way but it's it's just something i'm continuing to reflect on is um, I don't, you know, in pedagogical theory, I don't, uh, there's a language of using like piggy bank style, like, you know, you, you take deposits from your brain and put it into the student. And I've, I'm already aware that that's not how learning occurs. Um, uh, it's just, well, I don't know what more there is to say about that, but <clears throat> it's something I'm trying to continue to look at. I actually, I've been starting to ask people questions about what does it mean to be a student? What does it mean to be a teacher? And so thank you for your, the rich conversation already. Thank you, Ankai. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to keep reading a little bit and then uh, we'll open it up again. So if you have something uh, to say, make a note of that because we do want to hear. Um, this is from the commentary. Fushi says, hold on to the Buddha eye every night. Get up every morning as usual. It follows you standing or sitting, speaking or silent. It's there. Never hers, hers breaths away. Just like the body's shadow. To find where Buddha dwells, it's right here in this sound. The Buddha teaches dharmas and the Buddha's nature of beings here dharmas. Finds itself, enlightens itself and liberates itself.
And then the line uh, after, the line, the sutra, and foolish people, Subhuti, are said by the Tathagata to be no people. Thus they are called foolish people. And uh, Bill Porter commented on that saying, all attachments are manifestations of attachment to a self. Essentially, also all addictions are addiction to a self. The self is the only reality of which we are aware of since birth. All other realities are simply reflections and transformations of this one underlying reality. At least we assume this reality to be real. Yet when we examine ourselves in the light of wisdom, it is found to be without any basis at all. This is the only obstruction standing between foolish people and Buddhas. If foolish people realize that they are not people, much less foolish, they would be Buddhas. As long as they don't, they remain foolish people. We are foolish people and we are Buddhas at the same time. At the same time. So foolish people is not a derogatory term. Uh, it's not a way that uh, uh, Buddha is referring to non, to those who are not realized. The foolishness is actually the foolishness of our behavior while being a Buddha. We act as if we're not. We act as if we're not. We think, speak, and act as if we are not Buddhas. And that's that's sad. It's sad because, because this is the opportunity, because this is the lifetime in which we want to realize. So, yeah, let's open that up for a few minutes. Uh, foolish people, us as foolish people. I, I wanted to come back to the, a little bit about the teacher thing. Yeah. And also with this foolish people, I, I think... You know, what Enkaya is sort of asking is, is how do we relate to each other? Mm -hmm. Because if I'm no self, if I'm just a cloud or whatever it is that I, you know, could become, if I, if I, if I lose the attach, all attachment to the self, then what happens when I'm interacting with you, with somebody else, with, you know, what happens to my relationships when we're talking about all this foolish people and, and you know, transcending the self, we still have to be around each other, right? You know what happens? It Relationships flourish. That's what happens. Relationship does not need that fixation, actually, because fixation leads to attachment. Attachment kills life. It, it, it actually takes life out of life, right? It takes the breath out of life. It's the fixation that's the problem. Relationship... Actually, you flourish. Who is this me? <laughs> it's that constancy. It's that change, changeability in action. Um, so there is, you see, it's the other way around. Conceptually, that's how we think. Conceptually, I think that if I am letting go of me, then there is nothing there to speak about or nobody can say anything, right? That is creating, that is attachment to nothing. Ah. Right? That is becoming attached to nothing. Becoming attached to nothing is not better than becoming attached to something. Becoming attached to no self is not better than becoming attached to a self. It's a trap either way. 
And you're trying to jump from one to another and trying to figure out which is better. Yeah. Right? And right now, right here, neither this nor that is fixed. It is right. constantly changing. And if you're willing to change with it, relationships flourish because nobody gets in the way. Right. So there's no separation between me and the student or me and the teacher or... It's all together? There's no separation between you and you. Between me and me. <laughs> mm. Yes. Mm. Yes. So, Abba Myogen, she's, she's smiling. You know, I kind of listen and then I formulate. Um, <laughs> so I really, um, what do I think about this? Okay. So my experience, my experience with, in relation to what was said about being a teacher and needing a teacher or wanting a teacher or having that relationship, um, my experience being a teacher is that I'm not a teacher um, and I'm not giving something to somebody so much as receiving, um, receiving enthusiasm from my students. So in relation to having that relationship, it's, it's a, it's a relationship that, that nurtures the, um, the energy between us and lights something up, lights a spark inside of us that can help us to understand something better. But it's not just on the part of the teacher, it's on the part of the student. Like I, I can't um, imagine every day I'm actually inspired by my students um, and I'm, I'm inspired by what they bring to me and what they give to me and the things that they remind me of and uh, the insights that are, um, that are, that just come out of them because we mentioned something together. So I feel like, I feel like the teacher student is, is, um, is mutually nurturing. Um, I feel like it's, it's, I saw something here. You see it too. And then the other person says, I see it too, and this. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes this energy um, between you that helps you both grow. So this is what I this is what I feel about the teacher student thing. It's it's a very um, uh, interchangeable and um, merging mm -hmm. role. Um, and I think actually I'm just reminded of um, when, um, not mentioning anything about the ceremony itself, but when the um, when there is a Dharma successor in our lineage, the teacher's mat and the student's mat become very interchangeable and merge as well. So that's what it feels like to me. It's it's really a giving and receiving and that's, that's constantly merging. So... Um, that's that's my feeling about it. 
thank you actually let me just explain what you what you meant by that because most people don't don't know about this so uh during a dharma transmission uh ceremony in the soto zen tradition it's actually a ceremony that happens at midnight. It's a it's a secret ceremony that only a few people are able to to attend. But in that ceremony, uh, the zagu, the bowing mat of the teacher and the student, actually changes uh, different uh, st- stages of the ceremony. There is a point that the two uh, bowing mats are on the same ground, separated, and the teacher and the student bow to each other. Then there is another bowing sequence on in which the the teacher's zagu bowing mat overlaps the student's zagu which means the teacher's is a, the teacher is above the student and then there are some bowing in that and there's also uh, the opposite of that so that the student's bowing mat overlaps goes on top of the teacher's bowing mat so there is a teacher above the student there is equality and there is the student above the teacher as a continuation, right? As uh, the, the, the independent continuation of the student going forward, right? So the interchangeability that Myogen mentioned is, is definitely uh, revealed and uh, pointed at during a ceremony, uh, transmission ceremony. The, the point in this is, is the to watch for not identifying. When we become identified with either being a teacher or being a student, that can become an issue. That does not mean we are not respectful of the role. That there is, it's important to be respectful of the role of a student or the role of a teacher because it serves a purpose, because it is upaya. So we cannot just disregard it and do whatever and say whatever. There is, you know, there is uh, formality. There are times that formality is very important. Not for the sake of formality, because it's upaya, because it shows us something, right? And and the point of identifying, actually, I remember that, you know, when my daughter, first daughter was born, um, I almost, I looked for, I thought I, I'm supposed to feel something. I did not feel anything other than love, obviously. I did not feel that I became something. I did not feel that I've I've become, at that moment, I uh, became a father. Although we call it a father, but I never actually felt identified with that. I happen to be the one that has to take, that is taking care of that child, obviously, and I'm completely and utterly uh, devoted to that. Uh, But there is no such a thing we call a father. And there is no such a thing we call a mother, although we, there are such things. There is no such a thing as fixed. And that's the important point. Because a child is not my child. There is no such a thing as my child. A child grows up the way they need to grow up. And they become their own person, regardless of me. I may have some influences. But there's no ownership there. If there is ownership, then there is me as fixed and the child is fixed. And the same with the teacher and the student. So all of it is changing. And again, I think we find it intolerable. You know, because what do you mean I'm not a father? Of course I'm a father. And I would suggest look deeper. And be careful not to identify too much with it.
So anyway, I'm going to keep uh, reading a little bit more from the commentaries. Lin Wen Hui said, who has a self is a foolish person. Who has no self is the master of wherever they are, they are and acts without limits. Thus it is said, foolish people are the cause of Buddhas and Buddhas are the result of foolish people. So there may be foolish behavior, which of course we have to pay attention to, but there is no such thing as a foolish person. In the same way that, you know, a person, there is lying, but there is no liar. We are very quick to say, you are a liar, right? And it's not, there is no such thing, although there is a behavior that needs to be addressed, right? So to call somebody some liar is to fixate that person in that position in our own minds and to share that with another person. So how can we address our own foolishness without thinking that we are foolish? How can we address other people's blindness without trapping them in our own minds in that behavior? And what does that do to the way we, we work with challenges? You know, as Dogen said, there are fools who look upon themselves as if they were someone else. And there are the wise people who regard themselves, regard others as themselves. So there are the wise people who regard others as themselves. And the wise people are people who can see themselves in everybody, which means people that do not get attached to either a self or other. I am you. You are me. Right? Do we, does that dilute anything? What does that do to the self? So Wang Ji Xu says, The Buddha tells Subhuti that foolish people are not really foolish people, but they are merely called foolish people. This is a case of bringing up a point only to negate it. But if he is going to negate it, why should he bring it up? If he didn't bring it up, there would be no means of understanding the truth. It's a classic upaya. It would be like trying to cross a river without using a raft. If he didn't negate it, people might cling to his teaching. This would be like reaching the far shore and not disembarking, but staying on the raft. This is why he has to bring, up, to bring it up and why he has to negate it as well. Does that make sense? So we talk about teachings, we talk about the teacher-student relationship, knowing very well that this is all upaya. And knowing it's upaya does not mean we reject it. In fact, knowing it's upaya should help us embrace it even further. Because it's not a trap. <clears throat> Thich Nhat Hanh says, reflection is necessary for insight. The diamond that cuts through illusion has many repetitions, such as the ones above in this chapter. And the more we chant or read this sutra, the more deeply we penetrate its profound significance. If we read it only once, we may think we understand all of it. But this, cannot, this can be dangerous. Reading a sutra is like doing a massage. Time and energy are necessary for success. 
So in the Vidya Palamita, energy, right? Courage, perseverance. The Tathagata uses words and ideas in the same way. And then he says, a flower is a flower, garbage is garbage, awakening is awakening, illusion is illusion, afflictions are afflictions. But the Tathagata does not get caught in names or ideas. We, on the other hand, are in the habit of looking at these things as fixed entities, and we may get caught up in our own views. So the Tathagata chooses language that can help us look deeply and gradually become liberated. Sometimes the Buddha speaks in a way that sounds as if there was a self. For example, he said, Ananda, would you like to go to, to Vulture Peak with me? When he uses the word Ananda, his cousin and attendant, the idea of a person is used. In the sentence, would you like to go up to Vulture Peak with me? The idea of a self is used. Although the Tathagata uses words and ideas like this, he is not caught up by the words and ideas. So, does that make sense? Does that work? How about Daibo? No Daibo, sorry, Daikyo. I'm sorry, you cut out in my... Dike. I think my internet is low. So you cut out when you're saying something. Sam, when did I... When did you lose me? No, I, I lose you in the, in the end when you were asking something and then I didn't know what you asked and then you not named me and... <laughs> it's like, I don't know what I ask. Well, forget what I ask. How do you feel about this? Oh, okay. Um, that's easy. Um, I was thinking about the, this teacher student relationship and it brought up in my mind the um, kind of an analogy with chemistry where you have two compounds that kind of combine and, and make a reaction and um and in, in chemistry we never say that one compound is doing something to the other compound they're both interacting and doing something together to create a new reaction or whatever it is and sometimes the reactions are explosive, sometimes nothing happens, sometimes, you know, whatever it is that it happened, it's a combination of both, uh, what both components bring to the table. And in some cases, you know, one component may bring to the table electrons to give, sometimes the same component will just take over something else, you know, and, uh, and I think, you know, that's how we, we show up. I mean, we don't show up as, as entities that have um, a role that is so fixed, you know, and I do understand the, the Upaya, you know, kind of the, the naming of things just for the sake of functioning, mm -hmm. but, uh, but it's not, um, it's not how we, we show up. I mean, teacher and student or, or me giving something to somebody is, it's attaching to, to some sort of knowledge I have that the other person doesn't, or some sort of understanding that uh, the other person needs, and, and we don't even know what the other person needs, and and so it's a it's a little bit of a, of that attachment that you know we need to drop um, more and more on on how we believe you know we are showing up, and then it's it's part of our story if we self identify with being a teacher or a student, you know, and um, so. 
So that is kind of what what brought me all the conversation. I think it was I thought it was super interesting the conversation today about this topic because it's a, it's a complex one on on how subtle it is the identification we do and and uh, and how we rapidly kind of identify with one of the beings and not the other, you know. And uh, and so um, I think dropping the self. I mean, it was Kaku was saying about. Um, I like the whole thing about, you know, like, okay, I'm, I'm very restless now. I need more yoga and meditation. And then I go there and I go to meditation and whatnot. And it's like, what is this now? And, and I'm not, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's bringing in both cases that restlessness mm-hmm. and not understanding that the restlessness doesn't take out the ease. The ease is underlying that and it's always available and and it's all it's available i mean we don't see it on the restlessness we see it more often in the other side but it's like okay it's, that is is not um something to achieve it's something that is there and we need to connect to and i think you know all the meditation shows us that it exists mm-hmm. i mean that's what we see during enlightenment but we as we chant enlightenment is not yet i mean meeting the absolute is not yet enlightenment um, and, and when we meet the absolute, when we see that is situation where we are kind of saying, wow, I mean, that is not yet enlightenment in the sense that that is not the objective. This is not what we want to do. This is just kind of something that we are, I mean, the practice will bring us understanding, I mean, realization that that is already there. Mm-hmm. So we can kind of connect to that when everything feels more restless and and the restlessness doesn't happen outside it happens inside you know as we all know and uh so when we feel this restlessness how do we connect to that ease sensation Mm -hmm. is something that we practice more and more um and sometimes it's hard to do i mean like and that's the foolish person you know sometimes we just don't don't see it i mean we just attach to whatever and that's the foolish person so can we how, how, I mean, I think, you know, this is, you know, it's interesting how it goes around and around of, of dwelling nowhere, which I always like that phrase. I mean, it's like, you know, that's, that's, uh, if I remember right, that's what Queening heard on the street mm-hmm. and then eventually became Queening, you know, and, and it's like dwelling nowhere, um, raised the body mind and dwelling nowhere is that, is that like, uh, you know, dwelling in not being a teacher, not being here, not being at restless i mean being restless is not even a place to dwell we are not the whole thing is not restless we feel in restlessness and uh and so so I, I don't know i mean that's what my my mind was wondering around when hearing all you guys talking which i think it was a very rich conversation so i appreciate it a lot thank you thank you thank you thank yes you. uh yes it's important to understand because the more we understand uh, how to uh, work with a teacher, the more conducive it becomes, right? And the less attached we become, actually. Uh, and, and the point here uh, that uh, Thich Nhat Hanh brings up is, 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 is really crucial. The repetition, the deep tissue massage, kind of like repetition again and again and again and again, the mind very quickly thinks it understands. I get it. I know, right? Do you really know? Really? Do you really know? Go deeper. Go de- What do you mean go deeper? I got it. That's what we think. There is no deeper. That's as deep as I can go with this. Look again. Right? 
because it's that fixation because we do have to hear it again and again and again because we're very uptight we're very stubborn and we're quite stuck it's just the way it is and we have to accept that and and that deep tissue massage again and again and again and when you do deep tissue massage you're actually going into deeper and deeper layers so it's true that the upper layers may be relaxed but there is tightness below that right and Jean can tell us all about that uh, so we have to be we have to have the patience to keep coming back to the practice to keep coming back to the cushion again and again and again for another period another period another chanting another reading why? Because this is what it takes. Um, Vince, you want to say a few words? Yeah, I just thought um, it was interesting talking about teacher-student things when I am mainly a student myself right now in my life as a college student. And it kind of reminded me of, um, like, because Nkai asked basically, like, how, how am I teaching when students when you teach yourself, right? When you, as a student, teach yourself or as a person. And I think that one of the things that kind of stood out to me was that thing where we, we can't feed the, you know, a father can't feed his kids. Um, you know, he has to, like, the kids have to feed themselves. And that's true, but also not true because technically at a point in, in the kid's life, the father is spoon feeding the kid and he can't, the kid can't feed themselves but that's not learning right that's your father giving you food and all you're doing is eating it and consuming that and it might and, and you don't understand what's going on the moment that the kid mimics and picks up even though this has happened so many times beforehand as a father thing is the curiosity and the understanding mm -hmm. that kind of becomes the teach the the learning right mm -hmm. from the teaching mm -hmm. and it's only then when the person is is really ready and curious and 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 wants this understanding that i think learning happens and so that's why a lot of times even if you are teaching which i think i know personally happens to me often when i'm in classes that i don't understand you might be saying all the right things as a teacher mm -hmm. but it's not until i really want to grasp that i do learn and understand and that is on an individual level right i thought that was pretty interesting thank you uh vincent yeah so the teaching has to do with teaching uh each other to be curious because if we can be curious then the learning just happens naturally and about the food the spoon feeding right uh there are many times that it comes right out <laughs> and we all know what that looks like and the mess, right? So you may spoon feed, but then the swallowing is on the baby, <laughs> which doesn't always happen. So I, we are about just about to finish, and I want to finish with uh, uh, a paragraph, uh, a few paragraphs from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, which is very important to this. <clears throat> he says, the teachings of Prajna Paramita say that the Buddha's five aggregates are also an organic, of an organic nature. The Buddha is made of non-Buddha elements, the pure is made of the impure. In Buddhism, non-duality is the essential characteristic of love. And we don't hear much love in, in Zen, right? But he, this is very important to, to bring up. 
Non-duality is the characteristic of love. In love, the person who loves and the person being loved are not two. Love has an organic characteristic in light of interbeing. All problems of the world and and of humankind should be resolved, should be solved according to the principle of organic love and non-dual understanding. These principles can be applied to solve the problems of the Middle East and the former Soviet Union. The suffering of one side is also the suffering of the other side. Uh, the mistakes of one side are also mistakes of the other side. When one side is angry, the other side suffers and vice versa. These principles can also be applied to solve environmental problems such as climate change and environmental degradation. Rivers, oceans, forests, mountains, earth and rocks are all our body. Just, just stop and think about this. Sit with that for a little bit. All of it is basically our own body. We are the rivers, the rocks, the rain, the clouds, the sun, the moon. To protect the living environment is also to protect ourselves. This is the organic, non-dualistic nature of the Buddhist way of looking at conflicts, the environment and love. So this is what we're talking about. It's not the love we think of as love. It's a different kind. It's a much... It's an all-inclusive love. It's love that does not know anything else, actually. So, let's uh, end on that note. Uh, it's been great. It's to be continued. At some point, we will conclude the Diamond Sutra. I don't know when, but we'll get there. Thank you.